Hey everybody, welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning, Mr. Bauer. <laughs> My name is Jared, and I'm joined with our whole Matrix crew. We got Ryan. Hey, film fans. And Austin. Yo. And Rebecca. Hello again. So today we're breaking down the last in the trilogy, The Matrix Revolutions, the 2003 movie written and directed by the Wachowskis, starring Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, Hugo Weaving, and Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, before we get into it, want to give a shout out to all the awesome people who've been giving us reviews on iTunes. So since the last one, I think we were what like 468. Now, not only have we passed 500, we're at 550 now. Oh my god! All right. So yeah, that's we're pretty excited about it's that. 10% so increase. Let me give a couple shout outs. This is to Crane Man. He said the show is great and offers a lot of insights into the films. Uh, I don't always agree with the points made, but these guys are super smart and thoughtful and obviously put a lot of effort into their analysis. Well, thank you. This one is from Felix L. Poppy. He says, love the show. It's like being on the kitchen table with your friends chatting about our favorite movies while learning from each other while having fun. Well, thank you, Poppy, if I may call you that. Thanks, Pops. Uh, This one is called I'm in Love by Ryan Hoff. He says, from my early days of being a Matrix nerd, I've been looking for a place to wax poetic about the reasons why certain movies give me the feels. Well, as a fellow Matrix nerd, thank you, Ryan. Uh, and this last one is from the truth teller. He says, "Show is great, very short, very concise, That's but to the point." He told, it. he told it. Are any are so any I, women uh, watching this or listening to yeah, this? Yeah, what the hell? Well, Crane Man. Well, <laughs> I guess uh, I'm just not, not the last. Not the last five reviewers. The truth teller could have been a woman. That's right. All right, so I promised that you guys, I promised you guys we'd do something special for 500. So this Friday, actually, we are going to be recording a special episode, and we kind of played with the idea of doing a call-in episode, but then we thought to ourselves, this is the internet. What, are we crazy? Uh, and we just don't really have the people <laughs> to, uh, like, screen calls and stuff like that. So we are going to be talking about a bad movie, what we consider to be the worst movie ever made. But in order to discern which movie we should talk about, because not all of us agree on what the worst movie ever made is, we decided to do a poll. So this was a poll on Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. So each one of us submitted one movie. Not me, though, right? I thought you did. Did no, you not? I, no, I didn't. Oh, okay. Because I'm not going to be there for that episode. Okay, so I think it was just me and Austin, and I think uh, one of our editors submitted the other two movies. So uh, the movie I submitted was Southland Tales, because I think that's the worst movie ever made. Austin, <laughs> what movie did you submit? I chose Idiocracy. Okay, he chose Idiocracy. Worst movie ever made. I thought that you submitted, Ryan, but I guess it wasn't you, Batman and Robin. No. That was not you. I like that movie. I don't don't, don't like it. I don't think it's the worst movie ever made. Okay, and then the last one, I think these were both submitted by Ben, is League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. See, look, whenever we're we're talking about superlatives, like the worst ever, it's, it's impossible. It changes... Daily, weekly, monthly. I would mean right now, if you were to ask me what I think the worst movie is, and I could give a, like a hardcore defense as to why I think it's the worst movie, that's why I chose Idiocracy. You know? Okay, well, that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. My, I would I would give an hour-long thesis on why Southland Tales is the worst movie ever made. Well, Southland yeah. Tales, I can see, because that's an le- objectively awful, awful movie. Idiocracy, so is Idiocracy has Ryan. Mer- no, it's funny. No, okay, no. so <laughs> in last place, with 6% of the votes, is... Southland Tales. What? Uh, yeah, I know. It's because no one's ever even seen it. See, here, here's what's fundamentally wrong with this question, is that when people see the, what the, the question, four... No, the question is, what movie do you want us to talk about? Here are our picks for the some of the worst movies right, ever so made. Right, so people aren't saying that, that they agree that this is the worst movie. They're just like, what do I want to hear the most talked okay. about? 
Well, so I'm just I mean, saying that, hey, that th- this is for the a fans. Great assault. The fans have been giving us what we asked for. We asked them to leave us a review, so we're giving them what they want. Oh no, I oh, know. All right, so in third place <laughs> with 24 percent is League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. What do you like that movie, Ryan? I, I just I, I I I am ambivalent towards it. Okay. I uh, I uh, there's just a lot of other shittier movies. Southland Tales okay. is a good pick. Okay. In second place, though. in second place with 27 percent is what do you think, Ryan? Well, it better be Idiocracy because everyone better not think that that's the worst movie. At second place is Batman and Robin. Fuck everyone, dude. <laughs> Meaning the, the movie that we will be talking about in the running for worst movie is Idiocracy. So that's what we will be doing on Friday. Jesus. Christ. Ryan might be at Burning Man, so he yeah. might not be joining us. But Greg is coming back. Greg is in El Paso right now, so he's going to be joining us to talk about Idiocracy. Which So, Austin, how does it feel to have won? Better. I mean, I went from last to first, so I'll take it. Yeah. All right. Well, without further ado, let's talk about The Matrix Revolutions. I've had a really great time talking about The Matrix with you guys. The last one for me was a little bit of an epiphany. Like, I really had a really rewarding viewing of The Matrix Reloaded, which I hadn't had in a while. So I'm excited to talk to you about the third movie, The Matrix Revolutions. Let's get first impressions. Ryan, bring it home. (laughs) Well, uh, uh, so this movie actually has a special place in my heart. I, I saw it because the first time I saw it, I was so hyped for the for the for the fun conclusion of the Matrix trilogy that me and my friend Matt Cervetti, shout out to Matt, uh, uh, we decided that we were going to go to the first showing on that Friday, uh, you know, when it played. So I so he he was smart and decided to just play pretend he was sick from high school from junior year. I decided to just ditch halfway through the day, you know, and then. I got caught and suspended from school for it. So anyway, the, I always remember Matrix Revelation, Revolutions or whatever as the as the movie I got suspended for. Anyway, having said that, uh, that's besides the point, really, just an antidote. Having said that, I remember leaving the movie like it, it has the best mech suit battle I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. That's about mm-hmm. the only superlative I, I can give for it because the rest of it is very similar to Matrix Reloaded in the sense that it's just a jumbled mess of nothingness um and i'm <laughs> excited to hear your thoughts on it <laughs> okay i have to say d d minus <laughs> okay let's move on to austin austin what do you think so first impressions i remember when it first came out at all my like philosophy and film buddies were super disappointed and it took me a while before i watched it and then i watched it and i was kind of like okay i get it but th- i hadn't seen it since then so i've seen it once which was what when i was in my late teens or something like that, maybe early 20s, whatever it was. And here we are like 10 years later seeing it again. And to be honest, man, I kind of, it's not a good movie, but I kind of prefer it to the second one in terms of just watching it. Because there's not much going on philosophically, at least explicitly, at least not as much as the second one and definitely not as much as the first one. So it's kind of just an action film with some, people trying to fight some machines and over long like close-ups on people firing machine guns and so it's kind of like it's kind of more basic but whatever like I'm I'm lukewarm I'm lukewarm to the film uh, and whatever it's not as bad as I thought it was in my memory and it's kind of eh you know okay some very lukewarm sentiments <laughs> from Orion yeah. and like Austin. it doesn't make me angry I'll say that. Okay. 
They introduced too many characters too for a third movie. You know, you're kind of like what characters did it introduce? All the all the the, the fighters in in Zion. You know, like oh, all the fighters and shit. Kinda... Yeah, and there's a lot of crew that gets introduced, like on different ships that are oh, going to be yeah, fighting yeah, this yeah, major yeah. battle, and you've never seen them before, but suddenly they play like half an hour roles in the movie. Yeah, it's not fucking Game of Thrones. Anyway, Rebecca, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I guess I'm a little warmer than everybody else is about this movie. Um, so when I first saw it, I was just super excited because I was planning to write this. I think Jared, you and I have talked about this before. I was planning to write this paper for my metaphysics class <laughs> in philosophy on why each one of the Matrix movies represented a different era in uh, the history of philosophy regarding metaphysics and I thought this third one fits super well into my conclusion so that's mm-hmm. mostly what I took away from the film like damn it I'm going to get an A plus on this paper um, and I didn't <laughs> so I don't know if I should blame the third movie or not but what'd you get? I got an A not an A plus and for some of us that's that's crushing that's crushing <laughs> so <laughs> The name so, might as well um, be in there. No, but it was, you know, I, I think, I, I almost wish that we'd done these three podcasts like back to back to back because I would have preferred to see the movies in a, like in a marathon session um, instead of having a little while between them. As I was watching it, you know, last night and prep for this, I just have such a fondness for this movie, but I can't remember if I like it better than the second one. I don't remember feeling particularly fond about the second one. I feel like it's kind of meh compared to the first one and the third, but... I mean, yeah, after the first one, it all kind of gets very unclear, and it's it's just about generous readings at that point. So, um, so yeah, <laughs> didn't get an A. Thank you so much for that, Matrix Revolutions, but otherwise, okay. Yeah, I got, like, nothing out of this. Like, I, I was super jazzed after The Matrix Reloaded because I felt like I got something. So, in comparison, I almost feel like I like The Matrix Reloaded more than this movie. Oh, I do. Definitely. I also feel like this movie feels like the directors are just burned out. All the cool action sequences are in the second one. There really aren't any cool action sequences in this third one that even come close to either the Burly Brawl or the Freeway Chase. I disagree. Me too. I disagree too. When there's that, when there's that poke that hole poke through uh, Zion and all the aliens come out mm-hmm. and they form oh, a giant okay. super the alien machines, that thing yeah. is that pla- that's where i was like awesome okay. here we go so i'll agree with you that as so aesthetically i do not like human mech suits like an avatar what i, I just don't or in aliens i just don't like that i just but the, they're it's so a pure cool taste. to look at i i'm just not on not on with that uh, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um Having said that, I do think that it was probably the most emotionally resonant action yes. scene in both of the sequels. I didn't really feel anything in the car, uh, the freeway chase or the burly brawl, but you definitely do feel something in this fight, and that's probably the highlight of the movie. I but, love the freeway chase. Yeah, me too. Oh, it's a spectacle. It's, it's awesome. It's, yeah. Anyway, I was so excited after seeing The Matrix Revolution, or I'm sorry, Reloaded, that this viewing, I was coming to it with like a more primed brain that finally understands The Matrix Reloaded on some elevated level and that I was going to watch The Matrix Revolutions and it was finally going to click and I was going to walk away saying that at least on an intellectual level, these movies succeed. But honestly, I only have questions. I was super disappointed. I got almost nothing out of this. I was pretty bored the whole time. The only thing that really caught me off guard as being better than I remembered was the siege sequence that we were just talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's pretty good. Well, Other Jared, it that, sounds like you need to go back and watch our uh, 
what went what went wrong for this? Oh, I did because I, did. I thought uh, I thought we did a pretty good job no, of making I, I a compelling case. Job, the third but... one had some interesting shit happening in it. Well, our conclusion was ultimately that here are some guesses, but we have no idea what's going on. And 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 at least how I have this conversation at least plan to be framed. I'm basically just going to be asking questions. We're going to see what we can figure out here. But I think a lot of the things that we that you unearthed in that video, I think, are as apt as you can be. Uh, yeah. Uh, 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 going back to what you had said a second ago about them it just feeling like that it was two directors burned out. Yeah. Like, that's the most amazing thing to me because for people, two directors come right out of the gate – Right, and then uh, and make the Matrix, which by all accounts is groundbreaking special effects. Like you watch it, and you're like, "Whoa!" Like it is really like even today, a lot of it holds up. I feel like. And oh then, yeah. How do you regress for in two movies? How does it? How does everyone you mean special re- effects wise? Yeah, everyone remembers the second ones looking shitty, and they well, are. Uh, I mean, and I don't the, get it. How, the, how, the answer to that is for the first movie, they said we have these visions. And everyone says they can't be done, but they did it and they made it look awesome. So then they're going to do the same thing. They're going to say, "We're just going to raise, keep raising the bar." Except this time, the tech—you know—they just the technology didn't catch up to their ambitions like it so serendipitously. Fuck that word. Like it did in the first one. <laughs> Serendipitously did in the first. So you one. think that? So, so you think that that they had this grand vision and yeah. that it just so happened to be technology could accomplish it, but their vision got too grand. Yes. You don't think it was the? I think it was the opposite. I think that they were honed in filmmakers and they knew what they could get away with, and they uh, uh, cinematically and they may they 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 used their resources, made it awesome looking movie, and then they just got. To your point, maybe a, either a little lazy, just like they had a team of – they were making two movies at once. Remember, they yeah. made two movies at once. They probably had a 1,000 effects artists. They're like, all right, we just want an alien battle, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, like you said, they're burned out. They have – they don't have – there's not enough hours in the day to make sure every frame of the alien battle is state I mean, they of the achieve art. it to, That's to a my, degree. Uh, in the second movie, they create a one man versus a 1,000 people epic battle – that, you know, is mostly achieved. I mean, there are some CGI shots in that that look really boring. There's still the element of it has no motivation within the plot, which makes it drag a little bit. But in this movie, we see a fucking real-life Dragon Ball Z battle <laughs> with two guys fighting in midair, but it's just not that cool. Yeah, why? I don't... I mean, it, I like the rain effects. I thought those were cool. Like, whenever they clash, they got the big yeah. circular energy field of rain. I thought it was cool, but yeah, for some reason, didn't really cut it. Anyway, let's. We got a lot of uh, questions to ask. I don't know how many answers we're going to come to, but let's go into a recap. So, minutes after the conclusion of The Matrix Reloaded, finds real world Neo still in a coma. He awakens in a train station controlled by the Merovingian, where programs are transported from the real world to the Matrix. Inside the train station, Neo meets Sati, Ramakandra, and Kamala, a family of machines who exhibit human emotions like love, and inform us that the Oracle sacrificed her shell to ensure the safety of Sati, despite the fact that she has no purpose. Trinity and Morpheus team up with Seraph to infiltrate the Merovingians and force him to bring Neo back from the Matrix, where Neo then consults the Oracle and is told that he must stop Smith from destroying all worlds. Smith copies himself onto the Oracle and becomes Super Smith, while the people of Zion prepare for the impending siege. Knowing that he must continue the path of the One, Neo takes Niobe's ship and heads to the Machine City with Trinity, but little do they know, Bane is stowed away. Bane blinds Neo, enabling him to see a new world of white light. The Zionites 
valiantly fight off the Sentinels, and just when the machines are about to claim victory, Niobe shows up and triggers an EMP, saving the dock for now. A new wave of Sentinels attacks Zion as Neo and Trinity approach the machine city where they are attacked and Trinity dies. Neo bargains with a giant machine baby, telling him he'll destroy Smith in exchange for peace, so it jacks him into the Matrix to fight Smith. Neo loses the fight with Oracle Smith. Smith asks him why he persists, and he says, because I choose to. Then Smith copies himself onto Neo, and all the Smiths are destroyed. The Sentinels leave Zion, and peace is established. The Architect approaches the Oracle in the Matrix, and she says, all will be given a choice as to whether they wish to stay in the Matrix or not. End of movie. Okay, so I've got a list of questions, but I actually wanted to frame this with a certain thing. So Rebecca is actually writing a script for us right now. Actually, she just finished it on systems, and she talks about this thing called the artist critique. Uh, do you want to explain what that is, Rebecca? Oh, yes, the artist critique. Um, yeah, so basically it's part of a critique of capitalism. Um, it's a kind of critique that focuses on things like um, – the lack of agency that people have within capitalism, the way that they're stuck, the way that they don't have any individuality, that they're kind of just like everybody else because capitalism just wants a series of drones that are just going to be drones <laughs> for capitalism, just going to be making money, putting money back in. So they don't really care if you're an individual. And the artistic critique kind of arose around the 40s and 50s and 60s, right? You think about the beat poets who are like, fuck this, where we need some individuality, we need to kind of resist and find some authenticity in our lives because capitalism is just rendering us these like mindless, right? parts of the machine. And so all of these people start to start responding by trying to dig into authenticity or um, and continuing to find individuality. And those kind of become the new gods, the things that that matter, right, uh, as, as a form of resistance to capitalism, authenticity, individuality, etc. So I had read, the, so we kind of talk a little bit in the video, the first film can be read as an artistic statement about escaping the system. At the end, we have Neo who has he's become the one the last shot is him literally unshackled flying through the city and then the second film is almost a criticism about how these artistic critiques these uh, things that say oh you can escape the system by having this savior or whatever can actually help the system thrive so in the in the first one we have him as the savior and the second one we have well these savior narratives can actually be co-opted by the system to make the system stronger and so in this third one, with Rebecca's thoughts in my mind, I was like, okay, so what is the next step? If the, if the artist critique is, is saying that, you know, there are certain ways in which we can elevate ourselves above the system, and then the second movie is saying even those systems can be co-opted, what is the alternative suggested in the third one? But I found nothing. If anything, I found that it just became a religious narrative again. Uh, what do you think about that, Rebecca, Austin, Ryan? Rebecca, what do you think? Um, I mean, I guess I do think that they are in the third one, they're critical of the ability to escape the system. So in that way, they don't have the kind of, I mean, ultimately, I think the artistic critique failed because everybody was like, yeah, authenticity is bullshit. Capitalism, capitalism is just going to commodify that and be like, oh, you want rebellion? Well, now we'll sell rebellion on T-shirts. So isn't that cute of us? Now it's like Shea Chic, right? Shea Rivera's face on a T-shirt. And that's mm. what counts as... That's what counts as 
um, capitalism these days, kind of rebellious capitalism or something. Um, and so in that way, I think the third one kind of gets at that critique of like, hey, you know, you're not really ever going to totally escape the system. It's naive to think that you can escape the system. But there's some kind of hope in transforming the system from within. And that's something the second one I don't think really alludes to quite as strongly. Um, and the other thing I like about the third one is that I think they do more more interesting things with the machines than the first or second one do. They're mostly the bad guys in the first and second one. Maybe not as much the second one, but in the third one, they definitely sort of strip that idea, right, that the machines are just, and, and for the record, they're machines, not aliens, right? The machines are just bad, bad people. And that, that idea kind of goes away in the third one, which I find really sophisticated and really welcome in a plot that before that was pretty much just good guy versus bad guy. And I mean, that's so... That's so, you know, 19th century. Nobody likes that anymore. Yeah, yeah. So. It was it was nice because even the machines are exploited in a way, right? When, exactly. When exactly. Neo says that he just wants peace, you almost get a level of empathy from the machines that are in Zion that kind of like when they abate and they go down, I almost they almost do it like dogs do. When dogs kind of like – when the attack dog kind of cowers down, it's kind of like, okay, cool. Well, we didn't really want to be here anyway. We were just armed gunmen and now we don't have to – sacrifice yes. ourselves for a war that maybe yes. we don't even care about you know so it almost yes. it, maybe i'm anthropomorphizing too much but there's there's a there's I a level so. of yeah there's a level that we can see that they too were exploited and they're free now from this battle in a piece and i think that was really kind of a nice touch yes exactly and i think that that the film really um for me that that stage is set when the film more or less opens with neo in the train station right and he's talking to sati the little girl and um, and her parents, right? And they are basically saying, yeah, some of the machines want out and we can't get out. So we have to smuggle ourselves in and out. And so there's this realization that the machines are actually as much, they're trapped in the same way, or maybe not in the same way, but to the same extent that humans are. Um, and so then Neo has to figure out like, oh shit, these machines aren't just mindless, you know, um, pieces of, of uh, you know, flat technology. They actually have some kind of, agency and affect and desire and it matters to me now that I also free them and not just free the humans so I thought that was a really I mean I think that really sets the stage for why Neo is so important not just to the humans um, and that is a really compelling for me that's a super compelling thing to do to say the bad guys you thought were bad guys are actually sometimes good guys and they're just as trapped as you are and so maybe we need to get rid of this like pretty pretty false dualism and think more in a more complex way about who's culpable for the problem and how we can fix it. Right. But I, I would say that I, I actually read it as quite radical. I think that the only reason any progress is established is because of Smith. And Smith basically just crashes the system violently. You know, it's only because of him that Neo is able to have any bargaining chips and to actually get the machine baby, whoever that is. <laughs> yeah. to... right. But but it's also the wisdom of Neo and the Oracle for realizing the tendency of the algorithm that is Smith, right? Mm -hmm. So they mm -hmm. pay attention to the pattern and they say, let's actually – it's almost like an accelerationist argument. It's let's let the system – uh, it, the system in this case being Smith, let's let it keep reduplicating to the point where it overexposes itself and it becomes this one homogenous enemy. And even the Oracle gives herself up. And then Neo says, and then this is how I can destroy it from within. Yeah. Because yeah. now it's only a single point of, uh, of, of 
contestation rather than like this decentralized it's all over. Now it's uh, I've only got one inroad and that's all I need to do and once I get in there then I can destroy this virus yeah. Yeah. in a singular event. I mean, in a way, it's kind of like it's kind of like Zizak's overconformity model, right? Like you show the ludicrousness of certain systems or certain laws by conforming to them to the nth degree, because obviously none of these laws were intended to be conformed to so perfectly. Like, t- like a police officer, right, that cites another police officer for overstaying a two-hour parking limit or something, right? Mm-hmm. Then it becomes it'll become clear that like actually the two-hour parking limit is totally strange and like who's enforcing this and who it gets enforced on is pretty arbitrary and you know yada yada and so i think there's something like that here like neo and the oracle are sort of like let's just let this go let's just over conform yeah. be like oh you wanna you wanna do that do you well go for it sir and then once he's finally kind of over conformed so much the system's starting to break apart then that's when you can really Kind of hack right, but Smith and, Smith isn't part of the system. In the in the example that you're citing, it's let the system play out and then it will just eat itself. But Smith has always been a rebel. He's some sort of aberration in the system. Well, it's not it's not it's not let it kill itself. It's let it expose itself to its vulnerabilities, which are once it becomes like the one single point, then that means that there's a clear choke point by which you can overturn the system because it's only one point rather than like this thing that can navigate transparently and you don't know where it's going to be and it shows up. Now it's just everywhere because it's the only thing that exists. So now it's easy to fight. But I don't think that Smith is a product of the system. No, no, that's why I said that's why I said the system being Smith because Smith is a type of system. It's a viral system, right? So I don't mean the matrix as the system, but let Smith do what he's going to do within the larger system because it's systems within systems here is what we're talking about right smith is a system the matrix is a system um any sort of kind of interworking of meanings or parts i guess we could call a system so that's what i okay so they might as well jump to the end here here's my first in a series of questions so let's just talk about the end when neo says because i chew to and then submits to smith what happens does he get manually deleted by this baby thing uh do they cancel each other out why is this choice a paradigm shift? Yeah, well, so here's the here's the thing. You you were talking about religion earlier, and I mean, there's clearly religious themes in this. When he gives up his body, a cross yes. like explodes from his body. Yeah, right. Oh, clear yeah. as day. So I mean, this they're they're not being subtle here with their <laughs> with their Jesus illusions. But the thing that I thought was so interesting is maybe the biggest weakness of Smith is that Smith is fighting for the Matrix, but Neo is fighting for no, he isn't everything and i think that's you know, what uh, smith's smith, biggest vulnerability is does that make sense no no because smith isn't fighting for the matrix he's just a nihilist that seems to want all worlds to end no, but see he can I... he can only think i think within the confines of the matrix he cut like that's his world but neo the reason that neo is excessive in smith's mind beyond what smith can comprehend because he says why are you doing this we already know what the what the fates have uh, ordained what what's the point and he says because i choose to the point is, is that there's something beyond what smith can comprehend because smith can only comprehend according to a very limited logic but neo can appeal to this transcendent idea this this something beyond and i think that's what it is that makes him powerful in relation to smith's weakness See, I don't think that that's right, because the whole thing is that Smith not only—I mean, we see with the character Bane that Smith is able to exit the Matrix and inhabit the real world, but not only that, but what Neo tells the big floating baby thing is that 
he's not going to stop until not only he destroys the Matrix, but destroys this world. And then specifically, the Oracle says that Smith will destroy all worlds if he's not stopped. Right, but is that his intention, or is that just the consequence of him being this virus that only flows according to its programming? Well, it's hard to say, because I don't think that he was programmed. He chose to, He chose to. It was intentional. He, I don't think he was. First of all, yeah, in The Matrix Reloaded, we see that he does have some sort of choice. He says that, I knew what I was supposed to do, but I didn't. Hmm. I couldn't. I was compelled to stay, compelled to disobey. I've seen <laughs> well, the video. Well, he, what, what he does, but he has there... I mean, it's interesting because he has two conflicting, um, but right, one of them is one of them is his original one to end, right, to fight and get this guy basically to the source, right, and to try and cut uh, end this savior thing that's happening. But then Neo, you know, like sticks his hand through him or something, and something else happens, and now he's more than the original programming. But it's, he's not not his original programming anymore. So he still has this desire, this like all out purpose to end Neo. But now he has this additional ability to operate outside of his initial the initial confines of his programming, and so he just has these two. Right, two things that are happening to him at once. One of which is, okay, you're a program that's defunct. Now you need to go back to the, you know, to the source and get get recycled or whatever. And the other one is, no, I'm supposed to kill Neo. And he he gets to pick between these two, op- opposing but equally valid and equally present uh, programs within himself. And he chooses one over the other. But I don't think it's you can say that he he doesn't have the other programming in him. He still does. So he says. You're saying that the one of his programming is to enter the sources, other part of his programming is to kill Neo, but he tries to—you're talking about in the second movie, he says, I'm going to take what you, what you tried to take from us purpose. I don't know exactly what that means, but I don't think it means as simply as, well, I'm going to revert to my other side of my programming. And then we'd be ignoring what he says in the third one is that I've discovered the purpose for life, the purpose of life is to end. Yeah, now, no, no. I, I just mean, I just mean that I think we don't need to see him as totally, um, as moving absolutely and fundamentally beyond his initial purpose with the program, because his initial purpose with the program it basically is to seek out Neo and to destroy Neo, and that purpose does not change, and he is still enacting that. I mean, even till the very end, it morphs a little bit. I just mean to say that you can't. I don't think we can say it's complete agency. It's it is still part of this path that he was set on from the beginning. It's just that with through his encounters with Neo, he's been changed so that now his path is a little bit different, which is why he is able to make this why he's able to feel compelled to, you know, continue to to fight Neo rather than go back to the source, which wasn't which was another part of his programming. But he's somehow able to neglect that part of his programming, but continue with this other part. So, I mean, I think it's it's again, it's just this program or the system kind of eating itself. Um, I, I don't know that it's, that we could, we should talk about it as if it's no longer programming or if it's somehow outside of the programming structure. Yeah, and this is that great okay. paradox that you get all the way back to ancient Greece and Oedipus. Like, does Oedipus do the things that he's fated to do because he's fated to do them or does he choose willfully to do them? And there's this amazing paradox. And whenever we try to maybe force either freedom or determinism then you get into an oversimplification but there's this wonderful like juxtaposition this tension that is smith is faded neo is faded but then at the same time what is it that keeps neo fighting even though his 
you know, death is imminent or whatever. And he says, because I choose to. And so there's this there's this weird tension and this transcendence that he appeals to that is beyond the logic that Smith can comprehend that I think is is kind of lovely, actually. And it's religious, but it's really to the it goes to the heart of human thought for millennia, you know, that that beyond that might be inexplicable. So when he says I choose to, he's not really saying that he chooses to do anything in particular for any apparent reason. And that's the point. Maybe it's, it's just the fact that he has choice that makes him. Yeah, unique. he just. Yeah, he, just he has. That. He has the ability of choice. And Smith doesn't really not in the same way he does. But it's more of a confined choice, whereas because he doesn't understand the logic of anything outside of the world to which he's become accustomed. He doesn't understand this excessive idea of of choice. But I mean, that's that is what what what, you know, as I rewatched again, I mean, the, if there's one thing that annoys me about the Matrix, it is not it, the crappy graphics. It is the <laughs> language of choice and free will at the I mean, it is just it's so bludgeoning. I mean, I just feel like let the dead horse lie. You do it not need to. Yeah, you know, this is in, in, incessant. But it, I. But, it, but does it not also seem deliberately vague to you? In the third film about being faded or needing to do something or just knowing that he has to do this right so even though you're you're making a case you know and i think that case is there to be made that it's all about his choice at the same time you get i mean countless i started to count but i like you know i stopped at like 30 you know moments when he says stuff about how he's faded to do something or how he needs to do this because that's the way it's supposed to be or his very last word that neo ever speaks is inevitable Right. It was inevitable. I mean, so like, what the fuck, Neo? I mean, you got, you know, <laughs> so I don't think that it's just that he's got choice. And so that's how he busts because, you know, that's how he busts. Because at the same time, he's really buying this whole like. I am the this one. Whole, yeah, I am the one. and I'm supposed to do this <laughs> stuff. He's really buying this whole like journey purpose business, which is, I think, where we get a lot of the religious. And that's where a lot of the religious stuff comes from in the third movie, especially. But anyway, so, yeah, I think it's it's kind of both at the same time. Did the Oracle scenes frustrate you like they frustrated me it seemed like a lot yes. of it was so vague like why did they vague. frustrate it, it, you guys because it just seemed like every time there was every time there was i don't i don't know i mean you tell you tell me austin was it like oh i'm following this completely like yeah uh it makes sense that she says that neo says that uh why didn't you tell me about the sentinels or, and uh the architect and all that stuff and she says because you weren't ready who said i wasn't ready you did <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Or it just all this her, her, shit about like, oh, we can't see past choices that we don't understand. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, just all this fucking nonsense. Where does she get her fucking knowledge? <laughs> I don't know, man. But I mean, to all be right, fair, hold- if you go back and try and read anybody, right? So like when I was writing the video, uh, Jared, you were you were like, okay, we're going to do some stuff on free will and, you know, all this stuff because obviously we have to. It's in there a billion times. And so I was like, okay, which of the like 45 major philosophers who've written on, you know, free will versus, you know, fate or determinism should I choose here? And they are basically all equally unintelligible. So, I mean, they basically sound like the Oracle does. I I don't think that you get, I mean, so in fairness to the poor Oracle, um, I don't really think you get a clear account of um, fate versus free will um, or choice. I mean, that that really makes a lot of sense. I mean, so it makes so little sense that most people have to solve it at the level of symbolic logic and not at the level of like, you know, propositions like we're talking about them. 
um, because it's just yeah. so crazy and it's so, so I need contradictory. A, I need an you expert to, to tell you have to me. Just make it like pure symbols. <laughs> I feel like the the line is so thin between nonsense and legitimate philosophy <laughs> here. So I you're mean, you two wrong. are you're the philosophy. But I just wanted to point yeah. out that I, I'm not sure this is no, a failure sure. of the movie. I think this is a failure in how we're able to con- like conceptualize. Oh, the movie um, is no, a it's a failure of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay, I will say this. So there is, as somebody who spent years in studying theology and in Bible school and shit like that, this problem of determinism oh, you too? and free will. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, goodness. I was training to be a pastor for years. So Whoa. Well, they wouldn't um, let me be a pastor because I'm a woman, but otherwise I would have. Oh, you got to find yourself a good right progressive seminary, girl. I know plenty. <laughs> they let women be pastors in those progressive schools that are going to hell because that's against God's will. Anyway, um, but uh, this is something that theologians have struggled with for literally for millennia, right? I mean – and so there are these great little books. They're called like four views books that lay out these four different points of uh, the spectrum. So it's like libertarian free will on one spectrum, which is you're absolutely free and that God and that fate can't impinge upon that. And if it does impinge upon that, if you are impelled or I'm sorry, if you're compelled in any way, then that's a violation of your libertarian free will. And then there's like hardcore determinism that's sometimes called like double predestination. Like the Calvinists, right? <laughs> well, there's there's a particular Calvinist named Ulrich Zwingli that is known for this. And he basically said God not only chooses the elect, he also chooses those who go to hell too. And then there's like two positions in between those that try to like finagle that like ah maybe there's some element of determinism but we also can retain freedom like god uses our freedom to realize the performative declarations or and then there's like process theology which is there is no future so this is this is a very difficult thing that people have tried to work through and it might verge on the nonsensical but i think it's just because it's it exceeds commonsensical understandings of I'm picking up my pencil right now. Yes, I am yeah. choosing that. Or my exactly. mom told me to do that. Therefore, I was compelled to do it. Those are like simple examples, but I, I don't know. When you start to kind of explore this further, it kind of takes us into the contradictions at the heart of being. Absolutely, yes. I mean, even down to like causality, right? What, what does causality mean? Well, it depends on which philosopher you're reading and based on how you understand causality, there yeah. go your right. It your means cake orgasm. Free will or determinism. It's a mess. <laughs> I'm just trying to say the Matrix might not be totally at fault here for being the ones who did it wrong. They're relying on a history of philosophy that's also exactly. like pretty fucking unclear about how you deal with these things. So, I will yeah. say the thing that the thing that is most annoying to me actually might surprise all of you. If with all of this said, this idea that choice in the midst of a sea of nothing is very. I don't like that because it's just super, super nihilistic. So Nietzsche makes a distinction between passive and active nihilism. And active nihilism is Carl Schmitt then theorizes about this later on, which is it's this idea that it's grounded upon nothing. There's no necessary reason for it, but the strong will or the strong decisionism is what ultimately overcomes that threat of the nothing. So when Nietzsche says, because I choose to, there's nothing transcendent about the choice. It's not rooted in you any mean when sort Neo of. Neo says that. Uh, yeah, sorry. I mean, yeah. I'm sure Nietzsche at one point said that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure that he did. Yeah, when 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 Neo Nietzsche when Neo says that, uh, it's just very kind of. This is my problem, maybe with the Wachowski's position. Ultimately, is that it's not grounded in anything beyond. There's no metaphysics that it really ultimately roots in. It's just a nihilistic decisionism. You do it because you choose to. So you just choose to be a 
an X type of person, or you choose to follow X type of mission. And I don't know. For me, that's not satisfactory, ultimately. Well, wait, but, but, but could you not also not. say that Neo is divinely inspired? Yes. I mean, but I don't think he is because he just chooses to. So it's a, it's a conception of God that I think is – so in, in philosophical terms, it's like a political theological understanding. So Carl Schmitt writes about something called political theology is what it's called. And a lot of people would criticize it for his kind of misunderstanding of the intrinsic connection between metaphysics, which is the beyond, right? The thing that, that physics can't measure or the things that uh, formal logic maybe can't always aspire to. Kant would call it the noumena, maybe this realm beyond, something along those lines. And Carl Schmitt says theology is that way. Heidegger calls it ontotheology. But the point is is that, that maybe there's a different way that we can attach the absolute or the universal or the totality or God or whatever word you want to fucking apply to it and that we can connect that to the material world in a way that isn't this type of quote-unquote divinely inspired decisionism that is really just nihilism. Does that make sense? It does. So you're saying that Neo says because I choose to and even if he is Jesus with special powers, there's no transcendental signifier that's granting him this ability to choose or... Is that what you're saying? Or there is, but it's just a forced, what we could call it. I mean, this is, we're speaking in metaphors here, but there's just a forced transcendental signifier. It's not a real transcendental signifier. And this is one of the great problems that, that I think ushers from philosophy in general is this, this tension between these levels of, of reality and how they interplay and, and relate to one another. And I'm just not comfortable with like, and I know Rebecca might disagree with this because this film is – we talked about this in the second episode or the, with the second film. It's kind of this post-structuralist – I hate using this word, but post-modern kind of critique of power relations. But all of that is really just uh, – it just rests in what we might call a passive nihilism. It's the idea that there are these regional narratives, but we can't ever say that there's a universal without imposing a regional narrative and inflating it to the level of the universal, which is problematic. I agree with that problematic. I would agree that that's a problematic discourse, but to just resign ourselves and say, well, therefore, there are just regional competing narratives uh, would be the kind of post-structuralist approach, you know, like I don't think so. I mean, this is not a podcast debating post-structuralism, so (laughs) let it (laughs) go for now. Indeed, it is not. not. All right. So, guys, I have like 30 questions written down, and we've got through one. (laughs) let's go we've gotten through one all right so my next question is what is the source what do they mean by this the oracle says the power of this is like the big thing that i remember when i was on the matrix fanboy message boards trying to figure out what happens at the end of reloaded is it a matrix within a matrix is it something else this is the this is the description or this is the answer that we get the power of the one extends beyond this world. It reaches from here all the way back to where it came from, the source. That's what you felt when you touched all those sentinels, but you weren't ready for it. You should be dead, but apparently you weren't ready for that either. What is the source, and why does it give him... Is it is it deliberately vague? It's the singularity point. What, what does that mean? It's where artificial intelligence it's the source of all the energy so on earth he now. touched the concentration of all information on earth all everything on earth yeah all energy on why earth. would the- you know how like we're all being mined for batteries and then in the matrix world in the matrix world yeah and then that all goes to the source 
Right. Does it go to the source? Maybe. That's my theory. Yeah. And then uh and then and then Neo touched it and then I don't, his... when did he touch it? Is this a physical oh, place? Uh, I thought you were t- talking about well, that. She said that I mean, he touched it. She's, yeah, yeah, the, the metaphor is that he touched the source, yeah. It's like no, it's well, like what is it's the like, metaphor it's for like the, then? It's like the for the source is like the force. <laughs> it's everywhere, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I, 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 he, you're laughing, but that's the best I can come Neo, up with. Neo, Neo can, can do all these things because he is filled with midi chlorines. That's that's what's happening. Um, I think we can the just source leave it at that, right? is the source. <laughs> okay, here's a dumb question: the source of what? The so I think. I mean, I have no idea, but I things. think that you could. You, I'm. I would be satisfied with an answer to that question that basically just said, the source is sort of the original big um like google, like google headquarters dark webby sort of thing like it's this it's the place from which the, the original um self-conscious artificial intelligence emerged and it's the one controlling the data not not that it's the thing that has everything plugged into it necessarily but it's the sort of like overlord um and in some ways the source of the code right that gets rewritten it's the place where things go to get recycled um so i and i don't feel like i need it to be more than that i don't i don't even know if i need to think of it as a physical place to be satisfied with the definition i mean i think i i think to think of it as a physical place might put it in terms of the real world and not in terms of the virtual which i think the matrix is challenging us to think outside of that binary or maybe that's just a lazy answer um no (laughs) i mean i think that it's it's just not common that we would at adhere to these standards like you know that we have to be what what is the word you're it's like i'd be satisfied with such and such and such answer usually we expect a movie to just make some sort of elementary form of sense but this one seems to be evading that but i think what uh, rebecca was bringing up brings up my next question is what is the white light world that neo sees after he's blinded he sees the source of the real world what you mean? How he can see all of the lights it's and everything? The he virtual sees within the real. Yeah, he sees like the you know, it's like the equivalent of the Matrix code in the, his ma- old Matrix home. So I've read people say things like, "Oh, well, he can see like the electricity through the wires and stuff in the machine world," or like you know, he can basically see the Wi-Fi signals and yeah, stuff. Yeah, he can see the so info. It, so I mean. I feel like I'm being too literal with what Rebecca is saying. <laughs> the virtual within the real. I don't think so, though. I mean, I think like what other way? If if you wanted to, right, if you wanted to somehow visualize this crazy paradoxical point that the real and the virtual were distinct, but they've no, but now they're no longer distinct, and you can't tell one from the other. Like, how the fuck would you do that? How how would you do that in a way that's going to make any sense to anybody? Because it inherently doesn't make sense. Like, it's inherently you blind a your main character. Thing. So one way to do it <laughs> is to make it look like the real and the virtual, like there are just two sides of the same coin. So Neo has sight, right? He has he can see with his human eyes. When he can do that, he sees everything like you and I see it. And when he loses that, he sees everything as the the virtual world might experience it. But it's the same reality. It just has these sort of like this very thin membrane, right, that separates whether or not you can see that they share the same world or not. So, yeah, for me, I think it it is literally the virtual within the real and the real within the virtual. And I think maybe there was no other way that they could have demonstrated that in such a in like a, a visual film 
cinematic way. It's like doing <clears throat> ayahuasca or DMT and getting a glimpse behind the veil. <laughs> um, uh, uh, someone named Vivek on the uh, live chat set, uh, informed us so the source is the source code of the Matrix. We kind of said that. It requires the one to patch the anomaly every time. Why would the why would touching a source code almost kill him? Because it's so powerful or some shit. Isn't it is it well, not lines of code? I uh, thought he was supposed to reach Well, it might be that Thank you, Vivek. It's too much for him to you know, like you know, in the same way that like Abraham's, you know, brush with God, it was like almost too much. And it had to, I don't know, make him go white or blind or whatever happened to him after that, right? Like, it's like you can't be near that much code or near that much power or whatever, right? And come back. He's, I guess you know, I, he's I'm just, just mortal. I'm constantly teetering on this edge of should we say that, are we talking about literal code here? Or are we just talking metaphorically? We're talking about things that we can't really describe because the movie is now functioning on the level of something beyond our capacity to reason. Well, I think the I think we're talking about literal code literal code because they've is visualized it the code? so it's, it's like the, code it's, is everywhere. We right, are, but it's not the code. This is code. It's not the code. Okay. So we're saying that it's not only the machine's code but our biological code. Right, yeah, but, but that I think as that, well. that the matrix is like like, you know, we Everything is even biological code is is computer is code. A code. Exactly, there's a source exactly. to that too. So we're yes. to believe that the source there's a there's a machine source and there's a human source, and they all compact. All layers of reality are compacted into this one central thing that is called the source. And if there are further layers of reality, then they all they similarly derive their power from the source. And somehow Neo with powers that are not explained by his ability to do epic kung fu in a virtual world, is able to touch this godlike, celestial, divine... I'm no, just going to pretend it's a giant it's celestial orb or of divine. light. I mean, we're, we're, we're uh, supposed to think of it, I think, as part... I mean, at least for part of the films, as kind of the headquarters of the evil shit that happens in the films. So I don't think we're supposed to think of it as some, some like, transcendent thing or some godlike thing. Um... Yeah, I don't. I don't think so at all. I I do think we're supposed to think of it as something that is, like, basically on the side of the machines, such that the humans who are in Zion are not attached to or part of or in any way connected to quote the source. I think that the source is supposed to be but, something that is on the side of the machines. That certain individuals, namely the one, because in you know we're made to believe that he emanates or she. We don't know what the past ones were. She's uh, have emanated from the source in some way. Were born there. Have some kind of code in them that is designed to get them to repeat this process. So I think it's not it's not something that just collapses the human and the non-human and all these things into one. I don't know clusterfuck. I think it's. The, it's supposed to be part of the machines that some humans have access to by virtue of their relationship to the code and to the source and to the machines like the one, but not all humans. So and, not and, God. So. Right. And, 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 the co uh, and, and the giant robot baby face thing is, yeah, it's like the ultimate, you know, culmination of all the technology, you know, and really it seems like I'm just speculating, but it seems like it's just power hungry, right? It's just it's conquering everything it can conquer, and it just needs energy to run. That, I mean, no. I mean, that, that particular uh, thing, I don't know. That, I mean, what does that thing do on a common day? What is it? What does it go to bed? <laughs> you know, like what? Well, is I don't it, know. It, 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 it's I mean, not having fun. It, the, in the credits, it's called Deus Ex Machina, which I yeah. 
Right. So I think that, yeah, it's it, it's just scared that Agent Smith is going to make it die. Right. So then yeah. it, it's like, well, my only shot is to get this human that yeah. I've kind of, it's that's kind of part of my code too. Yes. Give him so extra what happens special powers, once, Dragon Ball uh, Z powers. Free. What happens at the end when Oracle makes the architect promise mm-hmm. or... You know, it gets the assurance that all the That's other the captives That's the stupidest scene in the fucking movie. Will that Not all the other captives. The... Just those who choose to. Just That's those who right. choose to. So, so there will still be an extraction of, of human vitality for the main the maintenance of the Matrix and for the machine. Well, some people, some people just as... want to live the blue pill life, man. I mean, that yeah. steak in the first one looks so good. <laughs> it did yeah. look good. Okay. So uh, last two things I want to bring up. I feel like one of the things that is, I think, the answer to all of... By the way, I wrote down 30 questions. We got through three. (laughs) Come on. Did you Uh, think we are going to get through 30 questions? I don't know. Well, honestly, honestly, I was expecting to ask a question and everyone to say, fuck if I know. Next. Nope. (laughs) Uh, All right. So love. Let's all talk about love, guys. Uh, It seems like love is the thing that brings salvation in most of the subplots. So there's the thing where Trinity is trying to get Neo back out of the train station, and Persephone says, if she has to, she'll kill every one of us. She's in love. And then the Merovingian says something that I found interesting. He says, it's remarkable how similar the pattern of love is to the pattern of insanity. And then later when uh, Z and uh, uh, Link's wife, I think the one that was supposed to be Aaliyah before Aaliyah died, uh, she's... Uh, making shells, getting ready for the battle, and she's like, I know you feel how you feel, but you can't do this. She says, I have to. Why? Because I love him. I love him the same he loves me, and if I were out there and he were here, I know what he'd do. And she says, but you're going to get yourself killed. It's crazy. And um, I don't know. I guess we're talking about all these things of how a lot of the language in this movie is deliberately vague or deliberately beyond our capacity to reason out as we would the plot of most movies i'm wondering if and then of course at the end in the epic smith monologue about why do you do it why why give up why keep fighting he says could it be for love illusions mr anderson vagaries of perception Mm -hmm. temporary constructs of a feeble human intellect trying desperately to justify an existence that is without meaning or purpose and all of them as artificial as the matrix itself although only a human mind could invent something as insipid as love so well done, well done. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yes. Uh, so, 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 guys, is it just, um, is it as simple as shit's fucked, shit's complex, but there's love that's going to bring us together in the end? I mean, okay, so real quick, <laughs> I'm only being cynical here just because I want to say this. Yeah. I don't know if I actually believe this or not. This is just a, a much deeper issue that I work through every day. But cynical me says this is the same hokey bullshit that we saw in Batman versus Superman where Superman's like you are my world that's why I did all this there was no real meaning but through the force of my choice I chose shut the fuck up that's some hokey bullshit that's my do you think that cinema in general because it requires a three-act structure it requires resolution for all these movies that deal with these concepts that are pretty hopeless and pretty bleak and don't have clear answers do they just lazily fall back on love because they're like well you know i'm trying to create a movie that reflects on the kind of abysmal philosophical nature of our time but we need a happy ending man what are we gonna do all right love people can get behind that what's the ultimate one of those say it jared the ultimate one of the ultimate love ending 
I don't know. It's Interstellar, dude. Oh, yes, yes, oh absolutely, absolutely. In the Enter the Matrix video game, which I also reviewed, because you know it has 40 minutes of new yes. scenes. Yeah. Uh, there is a scene where uh, Monica Bellucci makes out with Jada Pinkett Smith. Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding? I missed... What? Okay. Yep. All right. Hey, can we just... just can that that's exciting. Is there... Like, is, like, whenever I see Monica Bellucci, like, I just see sensuality. Like, you just her face. Oh, well, did you see her fucking dress she's wearing in the club? It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I mean, but by the same point, Trinity is wearing, like, a skin-tight leather... You know, all the women in those movies are treated, you know, for their bodies. Their bodies well, we are really, really highlighted, not one, just right? her. Like the hedonism, there's like a sensuality, uh, 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 um, like, and I mean that in the, the technical sense, like of sensation. There's something yeah. about like this sensitive, sensational hedonism that the Wachowskis are really exploring, too. Yeah. I mean, I would like to see the Merovingian's chest. I don't know why we didn't get to see that. It doesn't seem oh. fair. <laughs> uh, well, you did get to see Keanu Reeves' ass in the second one. Come on. Oh, you're right. Yeah, Ke- Keanu's right. a beautiful man. That bit when the rain's falling on his face and he's been beaten up, I looked at his skin. I was like, Jesus, it's flawless. <laughs> he is a beautiful man. That might have been uh, their most convincing. Uh, their most convincing. Um, so some some stupid effects. shit I got to yeah. get out of the way because we got an email recently. Somebody's disappointed that we didn't go through all of the basic stuff. So. Uh, the Merovingians club is called Club Hell. Satan imagery. You fought through hell to do so. Super obvious. Oh, the yeah, train yeah. station is called Mobile Avenue, which is an anagram of limbo. But the last thing I want to end on is the title of the movie. So uh, the Matrix Revolutions, obviously Revolutions, calls back to cyclical stuff. Uh, there's the cyclical nature of what the architect was talking about. But also one of the coolest things that I only realized on this viewing is that there are a lot of visual callbacks to the first movie. So there is a sideways tracking shot that is introduces us to the Merovingians Club, which is the exact same shot in which we see yeah. the club in the first movie. There's a rear projection is used when Neo re-enters the Matrix after being saved from the train station. So rear projection is um, basically in the first Matrix, Neo's in the car the first time he's re-entered the Matrix after being shown the real world. And uh, we basically see these blurry images of the Matrix outside the car window. And that's because they're taking a projector and projecting it onto like basically a white wall behind the car. So they use that again. Neo does the same kicks from the first action scene in the Matrix. Uh, he does that at the when he's fighting Smith at the end. He does that same kind of that move where he like says, come at me and he gestures with his hand. Yeah. And then at the end, there's the black deja vu cat. Uh, when the Matrix is being rebuilt after Smith is destroyed, so uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. So I'm sure there are a lot of to get the fanboys excited. Is that what that that's is? right? I <laughs> like fanboys when like he does me. that little hand thing when he says "come here." I, uh, uh, my testosterone Dude, a bad gets going shot. a little bit. I'm like, oh yeah, that's a tight shot. Hell yeah! <laughs> and, and and by the way, Hugo Weaving is one of my favorite actors of all time. I have such a man crush on him. So. I like the, fact the dude that, I don't that does the impersonation of him, the Bane guy. How does uh, see, he, like, he sounds like Hugo Weaving. I was yeah, actually thinking good. that is one of the most understated parts of this whole trilogy. He does a brilliant impression of Hugo Weaving. I mean, I just, just so good. The problem is I'm watching and thinking I'm seeing a Hugo Weaving impression, which kind of took me out of it a bit. Oh. But anyway, guys, we're going way over. So uh, I'm going to have to call it. So thank you guys for watching. Maybe one day we'll get to those other 27 questions about this movie. <laughs> also, uh, I, 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 
I didn't articulate the definition of capitalism well. It's the exchange of goods and services by private individuals, not by the state. All right, that's all. I Did people to say. in the comments give you shit for that? <laughs> Everyone was like, "You don't know what the fuck you're talking about." And yeah, I'm high. Listen, so. I'm gonna be in LA next week. If anybody that's listening wants to come and we can chat about what capitalism is, we can talk about Marxism, we can talk about love, Let's we can do talk it, about dude. life, I can't we can talk wait. about beauty, and we can get fucked up. Come yeah, on. You know what happened? To, you know what happened to Socrates, right, Austin? That's right. What? He sacrificed his life for the greater good. He was killed for corrupting. No, no. You. He sacrificed <laughs> his life for the right, greater right, good. Right, 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 right. Anyway, um, so <laughs> As guys, all philosophers uh, do. Thank you, everybody, for giving us those reviews. We're already at 550. That's almost 100 more iTunes reviews than we were last week when we recorded. So you guys are the best. We're going to do something special. We're going to talk about Idiocracy, which is the one that you guys want. We're going to be talking about that on Friday. The best worst movie ever. I guess so. According to Austin, it's the worst movie ever made. So, Austin, you better come prepared to back that up. Oh, don't Ryan's worry. Ryan's not going to be I'm here because Ryan's going to be a burning man. Greg, Greg will be here in his stead. <laughs> but also, Rebecca and Austin are coming to L.A. Yeah. On the 5th, I'm going to meet Austin for the first time. We've been podcasting together for almost a year, and I've never yeah. met the man. Never seen him I'm going to shake his hand. Yes. Firmly. It's going to happen. And we're going to drink. A diet Dr. Pepper. Yes, we are. Uh, anyway, so... Oh, yeah, we're going to do something special. I don't know what it is yet, but we're definitely going to live stream it. We're definitely going to put it up. It's going to be all of us here in person if Ryan isn't still at Burning Man. Uh, anyway, so we're signing off. Where can we find you guys on the internet? Ryan. You can find me at Ryan's Shorts and Ryan's Game Show and Patreon. If you want extra shit every week, it's going to be sweet. I mean, every month. <laughs> anyway, go over there. <laughs> All right, and Rebecca. Oh, you, you, I hate this question. Nowhere. I mean, you cannot find me anywhere. I'm on Facebook. I'm on You're going to have to go to Eugene EDU. and stalk um, her. I have some publications, <laughs> but otherwise, no. All right, and Austin. Uh, hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I also co-host a philosophy podcast called, uh, called Owls at Dawn. We actually just released an episode on time. So if you've ever had that stoner moment where you're like, bro, what even is time? Then check out this episode. We delve into this famous argument by a philosopher named McTaggart who says that time is not real. So check it. That's right. Whoa. And spoilers, it's about capitalism. <laughs> you guys, it's not. and you analyze the movie In Time with Justin Timberlake? It's really not. I promise you it's cool. not. <laughs> anyway, thanks for watching, guys, or rather listening, or if you're watching on the live stream. Anyway, peace. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. Love ya. Ciao.